Hi, I'm Andrea. And I'm Claudia. And we are the Dodgy Crime Girls. Heck yes, we are. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi, and welcome. Hey, everybody. What's happening? Not much. I was so excited to see you today because lots happened this past week. I got a puppy. I could not believe it. She's the cutest little thing. Now, I am partial to cats. I know. However, my family, you know, it's the right time to grow. Yeah. And it's so fun to have a puppy in the house. I can't even begin to tell you. And she is a judgy crime girl. Yes. She is. (laughs) Oh, I love it. She's adorable. Her name is Hershey, and she'll be sporting some JCG crew merch Mm-mm. shortly. You just watch out. You just watch. She is going to be like my little protector. Yes. That's what's going to happen. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. She's adorable. I love it. Thank you. My Hershey <laughs> is like your baby, Levi. Yeah. It's they're exactly both- like her dog. Like uh, chocolate labs. Oh, and they're so yeah. cute. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so stinking cute. And speaking of merch, you can get your merch on our website. Judgycrimegirls.com. Run on over today. Check it out. We have some really neat stuff there. And we were just talking because... Claudia was wearing a Judgy Crime Girls shirt downtown this weekend, and somebody asked her, oh, do you like that podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went to German Fest, and uh, I wore our t-shirt, our merch, and I was standing in line to get another pitcher of beer. <laughs> And I was feeling pretty good at that time. And she said, oh, my gosh, do you listen to them, too? Do you like them? And I said, yeah, a little bit. And she said, my sister listens to them, and she keeps telling me about them. I'm definitely going to have to check them out. And I'm like, yeah, give them a try. They're (laughs) pretty good. (laughs) Oh, my God. So I... I don't know. I choked. I totally froze. I didn't want to tell her it was me because I was semi drunk. (laughs) Well, no one knows it's us. Nobody knows what we look like. Right. So it's funny. It's very funny. And then when people ask me, oh, you do do a true crime podcast? I'm like, yes, I do. But I don't want to tell them. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was just so funny. I brought cookies. You guys, I'm the worst friend ever. Every time we sit down, Claudia's like, I'm on a diet. (laughs) Yeah, but clearly I'm not. I haven't lost a pound yet. Well, this whole time I lost maybe like a total of five, but I haven't been very good this past week and a half. So who cares? Give me all the crumble cookies you got over there. Listen, (laughs) look, speaking about the past week and a half or whatever. So sorry that we took a little hiatus. We, you know, had some life changes and things going on. We appreciate you hanging in there with us. And we're back in the game. Yeah, we're back better and stronger than ever. (laughs) JCG crew forever. Forever. Yes. (laughs) So yeah, crumble cookies is our snack today. And now for your fact. For my fact. Oh, wow. This one I thought was interesting. I have never heard of this before. Prohibition of dying. And prohibition of dying occurs when a law is passed that makes it illegal to die in a certain location. Uh, Let it be a building, a site, or an entire town. It dates back to the 5th century BC. And when dying was outlawed, and Greece. And they did that so they can appease the gods. So you couldn't die there. (laughs) So all the tombs that were dug up and the bodies were transported off the island. I I don't know where they took them. On what island? In Greece. In Greece. The island of Delos. Okay. Yeah. So you cannot die there. You can't die there. And the ones that were close to death were also moved off the island. And death was banned on the Japanese island for religious reasons. And you can't die in this little town in Norway. You can die there, but you aren't allowed to be buried there because 
The extremely cold weather prevents bodies from decomposing. That is so interesting. And I thought what was interesting is that at least six towns across France, Spain, Italy, and Brazil have prohibited dying since 1999. <laughs> So all the old people get hauled off. That is so But sad. What if you die in an accident? I you don't... died on that in that town. So your grandma gets older, and you're like, "Grandma, we love you." But bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of that before, and I think it's extremely weird. It is very weird. So about three people told me today that there is a new show that's out that reminded them of me <laughs> and you. And it's called Based on a True Story. Somebody else was talking about that yesterday, somewhere on Facebook, I think. And they're like, if you have not watched it, this is this group. It's us people. <laughs> yeah. But it's, I guess, it's a true crime comedy thriller. Uh -huh. And it just came out and it's called Based on a True Story. And it, they, I guess they meet this serial killer mm -hmm. and then they do like a podcast. <laughs> I don't know. And I'm like, listen, I, that's all very funny, guys, but we actually like research real cases we don't watch. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, but it was so funny. So anyway, they really enjoyed it. So I wanted to share because I guess it's pretty funny. On Netflix? No, it's, I know it's on Peacock, but it might also okay. be on HBO Max. Okay. So check it out. Everybody's saying it's all the rage. It's very funny. So all right, listen, everyone get comfy and get your cookies because Claudia is about to deep dive into something very special for us. Where are you taking us today? I am taking you to Sverige. What the hell did you just say? That's Sweden. Okay. Are you Sveria. allowed to die there? Yeah, I think so. I haven't read anything about it. Okay. But we are gonna be talking about the Knutby Philadelphia cult. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. If we have any listeners from Sweden, please excuse my pronunciation of names. <laughs> I tried to look them up, and I think I got them down, but yeah, please forgive me. So, Andrea, tell me, though, when you think of Sweden, what comes to your mind first? Rolling hills, sheep, uh -huh. cute shoes, uh -huh. clean water. Mm -hmm. Well, most people would say Ikea, because <laughs> I ask a couple people, I'm like, if you think about of Sweden, what comes to mind? Ikea? <laughs> But here in America, everybody says Ikea, but it's really Ikea. But there's so much more to Sweden than that. They produce some of the greatest bands and music like ABBA. Do you remember Europe? They sing It's the Final Countdown. Yes. And Carrie, they yes. come from Sweden. Roxette? Yes. Ace of Bass? Yeah, yes. yeah, they're all from Sweden. They have like the greatest songs. So, okay, I found a couple fun facts about Sweden that I thought were interesting. Sweden, like most Europe, they're eco-warriors. Recycling is so efficient in Sweden that only 1% of waste ends up in landfills. 1%. Wow. That's amazing. So 50% of waste is recycled, while 49% is incinerated for energy, which is actually not enough to keep the incinerators going. So as a solution, they import waste from Norway and the UK to burn and get paid for it. Oh, I thought wow. that was very, very interesting. Yeah, I imagine it to be very eco-friendly, like yes. clean. Very much so. And it seems amazing. It is beautiful. I read somewhere that two-thirds of Sweden is covered by forest. Oh, wow. Two-thirds. That's, That's a lot. That's beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. And just real quick, another fun fact. I could not let this go. I wasn't going to put this in here. But 
it kind of blew my mind a little bit. North Korea is dramatically in debt to Sweden. So back in 1974, North Korea ordered 1,000 Volvo 144 models and some other mechanical equipment from Sweden or Swedish companies at the cost of $73 million. And uh, North Korea promised to compensate the companies, but they actually have never paid a penny since (gasps) 1974. So now the amount of money North Korea owes is around $330 million. And to this day, Sweden still sends invoices and past due notices to North Korea (laughs) that they still owe this money (laughs) to this day. That's dedication. I mean, are they sending it to an unknown address where it just gets returned to sender? No, I think it's legit to the North Korean government, I guess. Yeah. So reading it. Yeah, I thought that was that was very very interesting. It is. And every month that secretary throws it away. Probably. <laughs> yep. So to start off, the Church of Sweden is mainly Lutheran. It has been separated from the state since the turn of the millennium. And of course, you find other religions there too, from other Christian denominations, Buddhism, and everything in between. But overall, Sweden is not a very religious country. So on that note, let's get into today's episode. Okay. On the Knut B. murder. Knut B. is a very small town in Uppsala, and it's just an hour north of the capital, Stockholm. There is a docu-series on HBO called The Knutby Philadelphia Cold. That's the most recent one. It came out in 2021. So also want to mention a disclaimer. This episode is about infidelity, sex, and manipulation of how (laughs) cult leaders work. And I just want to say if I come across maybe disrespectful towards this religion. I honestly really don't mean to. I do respect everybody's right to, you know, worship any which way they want. Please keep that in mind. So what is a cult? I would say it's kind of where you follow someone blindly Mm -hmm. and just put all of your inhibitions aside. Yes. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. Now, this episode is specifically about the Pentecostal church, and we do have a lot of Pentecostal church, and I don't really consider them a cult. But if you look it up, it tells you a cult is the term of a relatively small group, which is typically led by a very charismatic and self-appointed leader who excessively controls his members, requiring and asking for unwavering devotion to a set of beliefs and practices which are considered deviant, uh, outside the norm of society. Mm -hmm. And that's why I call this little group a cult, because that's exactly what happened here. Okay. So they kind of had practices that were not the norm. Right. Okay. Yes. All right. So even if even if it was considered Pentecostal, mm-hmm. this particular sect was not your average. Right. Okay. They were secty. They were culty. <laughs> they were sus secty culty. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So at 4.45 a.m. on January 10th, 2004, police were called to a residence in Knutby. 30-year-old IT entrepreneur Daniel Linde was shot in the face and chest after answering a knock on his bedroom door. He was left in critical conditions. Two hours later, it was discovered that his neighbor and employee, 23-year-old Alexandra Fosmo, had also been shot. She was found dead in her bed, and Alexandra was the wife of Helge Fosmo, the pastor of the local Pentecostal church. The following day, 26-year-old Sarah Swenson confessed to both shootings. She had worked as a nanny for the pastor's family, 
And two weeks later, the pastor was also arrested. They wiretapped him, and the wiretapping had revealed to the police that Swenson and the pastor were lovers, and the pastor and Daniel Lindis wife were suspected of instigating Alexandra's murder and the attempted murder of Daniel Linde. Whoa. Yes. <laughs> This is moving very, very quickly. Okay, sorry. <laughs> had the pastor's wife mm -hmm. was shot mm -hmm. and their nanny shot, confessed well, to shooting her and the neighbor who was mm -hmm. also a part of the church yes. as well. Yes. Okay. And yes. then the pastor himself, he was also arrested later. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I feel like I told you the whole episode. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. <laughs> And as you can imagine, this turned into a media frenzy. And mainly because a pastor was in the middle of all of this. And, you know, when a pastor is involved, it's even more sensational I'm because we consider them good people. Right. And then when they are not, and they're living this secret life, right? especially when murder's involved. Mm -hmm. This is someone you're worshiping with. Right. But so there was a secret love affair going on with the nanny? You, yes. You said? Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> There's a lot of information. Right. And we'll get into okay. This was more kind of like a little bit of an intro of what to expect. Okay. And to really understand all of this a little bit better, we're going to have to go back a little bit, about 12 years. It all started in 1992 with Osa Valdau. Osa Valdau was born on October 26, 1965 in Örebro, Sweden. She herself described her childhood as difficult. Her parents divorced when she was a teenager, and she was lost during that time, but she found salvation. She was born again. That same year, her parents divorced. Her grandfather was a prominent figure in the Swedish Pentecostal movement, but her mother was not a fan of that movement in general. There was tension at home, and eventually Osa was sent to a foster home. She started to work with other young people for the Pentecostal movement, and in 1990, she was recruited as a children caretaker within the Pentecostal movement in the university town of Uppsala. So, but two years later, at 26 years old, Osa was forced to leave her job at the Pentecostal Church in Uppsala because at that time she was already divorced and she was accused of having inappropriate relations with the youth at the church. Ooh. So she left and she ended up in Knutby. Knutby already had a small Pentecostal congregation, but they were a little bit older And as they got to know Osa, uh, they didn't agree with her new way of thinking or what she was trying to do with the Pentecostal church. So the elderly, the older people left. What was she trying to do? We'll get to that. Okay. I probably should should have put that further down. But... <laughs> I just didn't understand. I was like... What? Well, she was already inappropriate with children. Well, I already don't trust her. Right. I was like, what is she doing now? Right. <laughs> well, so, yeah. But the older people left. And in the long run, that was fine with her. She had younger people join her church that um, admired her. And that is what she was going for. Yeah. She didn't need anybody questioning her. No, because she wanted to get them alone. Right. And we don't like her. No. No. So when she got to Knutby, she found a place to stay with the Valdau family. And they had a son named Patrick, who was 16 years old at the time, and would eventually, when he turned 18, become Osa's second husband. She was 10 years older. Oh, my goodness. Than Patrick. Now, she waited... She Till he was 18, but they did get married. Oh. Yeah. Eww. 
Well, the Valdau family uh, was deeply religious, and they went to church together all the time. It was all about the church. Osa was hired part-time by the Pentecostal congregation of Knutby in March of 1992. Kim Vincent, whom she had met in Bible school back in 85, was a pastor there, so she already knew the head pastor. Osa's authority over the congregants quickly increased after she declared herself to be the Bride of Christ. Excuse me? Yes personified. So she got hired by the church as the head person? No, she knew the head pastor from a, she met the pastor in like a Bible school back in 1985. So when she came to Knudby, she already knew the pastor there. So yes, she knew the pastor, but so she wasn't the pastor, but she told everyone she was the bride of Christ. Yes. Wow. Yeah, so she she was like, I am the bride of Christ because she claimed of prophecies about a disrespected servant of the Lord who would be the cause of a fire from Knutby. So keep this in mind. Say it one more time. Okay. There were claims of prophecies that uh, within the church there is a disrespected servant of the Lord, who would be the cause of a fire from Knutby. So there is going to be somebody who will, mm, like, try to cause trouble. Okay. In their little church. Gotcha. And she's the one that has this prophecy herself. Her and uh, there were a couple other admirers. Of course that there had were. Yeah. The same prophecies. Of course they did. Yeah. So between 1992 and 1997, Osad traveled around Sweden delivering sermons. She picked out individuals that she then invited to Knutby to join her church, or at least to come check them out. And one of them was Helge Fosmo, later to become her partner and the leader of the congregation. Helga Fosmo was born on July 27, 1971, to Norwegian parents, and he was the youngest of five children. He found salvation at the age of 12, and at the age of 17, he met his future wife, Helene Johansen. In 1989, he joined the Pentecostal Church of Christinaham, where Helene was also a member at that time. And after high school graduation, he went to school to become a actually science teacher, but eventually dropped out. And in the spring of 1993, Hege was involved with Jaspis or Jaspis. And he became a leader of a small Christian group inspired by the Word of Life, which in Christinaham was a small group inspired by Ulf Ekmans, which is part of the Word of Faith movement. When you look into cults and different cults, it's like really hard to like keep up with everything and everyone. So the word of faith teaches that Christians can get power and financial prosperity through prayer, and that those who believe in Jesus' death and resurrection have the right to physical health. And everyone else doesn't? Right. Okay. So, but after a few months, however, he left Jaspis and eventually returned back to the Pentecostal church. He was then employed as a youth pastor. Helge met Osa Valdau for the first time at a revival meeting in August of 1993. Eventually, Helge and his wife and their two children, with the third baby on the way, packed up, and also moved to Knutby in August of 1997. The Fosmos moved into a house next to Osa, and Helga was spending most of his time with her reading the Bible. They found that the metaphorical interpretation of Bride of Christ, which is mentioned in the Bible as the church is not explicit in the New Testament text. So Helga told Osa that if the bride were a person, it would have to be her. 
And she was like, yeah, I am. Yes. So Helga then bought a gold ring with seven diamonds. And in March 1999, uh, he was the only other person present at the ceremony where Osa Valdau was engaged to Jesus, where she became engaged. She became the bride of Christ. Hang on. Helga is a man. Helga, yeah. That is so weird to me because in my brain, it's a girl. Helga. Well, Helga is a girl's name. Helge is a boy's name. Okay, thank you. Because I've never heard that in my mm-hmm. life. But then also, okay, Helge gave her a ring. Mm-hmm. But he, he bought was it. like, hey, let's go over here. And you just stand in the sunshine underneath this ark and marry yourself and I'll take your picture with you in the sunshine, and we'll just call this God. And, and your seven diamonds be glittering in the sun, and you're now engaged to Jesus. Got it. And she changed her name. Her name now was Tirsa. Okay. Helga said later in court that he had to mediate Jesus to her by satisfying her sexually with his hands. No. Why did I just do spirit fingers? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that's what he said later in court. So later investigators found a document called the Tirsa Prophecy because she changed her name now. Okay. Okay. In the year 2000... Osa wrote down what she thought Jesus had told her, and it said, I am the king of kings, and you are the queen of heaven. I had you in mind already at the creation of the world, and I have been waiting for you ever since. Remember that your word has power just like mine. And ever since that prophecy, the members regarded her as one with Jesus, and they totally obeyed her and did, did everything she wanted them to do. Did people like come to this wedding? No. Helga was the only one there. Okay. 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 But he was the pastor. He was a man of God. So God. they believed him. All right. And they believed her prophecy that Jesus said, your word is as good as mine. Okay. So a few days before Osa wrote the prophecy, a person close to her got word from God that Osa was supposed to die in order to marry Jesus in heaven. So that kind of created a little bit of like a state of emergency within the congregation, and it affected everyone's feelings, morality, sexuality, and everything else of every member, because they're like, oh my gosh, she's going to have to die soon. What are we going to do? But Osa also had servants amongst her inner circle. They took care of everything relating to daily life, and they protected her through prayer and spiritual battles. The prophecy showed how everything, including the servants, was predetermined. The leaders interpreted the signs and told the group what was going to happen to them. So whenever somebody had a prophecy, they made their own translation of that. I'll give you a translation. Whatever fit them best, I think. The jazz hands are coming. Yeah, my jazz hands. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So Helga worked with Osa almost around the clock, all the time. Now Helga's wife, Helene, pretty much complained in front of some other members that he's always gone. And then Helga accused her of being rebellious and just jealous of him and Osa. And being jealous wasn't allowed. According to Helga, Osa said that Helene wasn't worthy of him. And if she didn't change, God would take her home. Ooh. And according to Helga, it all happened very gradually. Osa gave Helga more and more trust and faith and things to do within the congregation. She kind of mixed it with like flattery and praise mixed with a little bit of anger. 
Ooh. just kind of, you know, she's the boss, but then it's kind of like you suck, but you're cute kind of thing. Ooh. So in the meantime, Helga and his wife hire a nanny, and her name was Sarah Swenson. Sarah was 22 years old, had grown up in a small community in the countryside in Sweden, and she was raised a Christian as an only child. She was often hospitalized because she had severe food allergies. She was limited to eating only meat, potatoes, rice, blueberries, and raspberries. Sounds like your diet. Yeah, pretty much. Chocolate. (laughs) Her mom ended up quitting her job so she could take care of Sarah while she was still young. But unfortunately, sadly, her mom died when Sarah was only 11 years old, and she was then raised by her father. After school, she used to attend a Bible class, and once Osa came there to preach, and Sarah was just so inspired by her because she just loved what Osa had to say. And she started driving to Knutby for Bible classes and attend church. And then eventually she moved there because she was told by Osa that she was, Sarah was a shield of God and she needed to help protect Osa from evil. Of course. So in November 1999, Helga's wife, Helene, died under mysterious circumstances. Helga and his wife woke up sick with the stomach flu that had been circulating around the village, and there were a lot of people that were sick. Helene threw up, came back to bed, and after some time, Sarah, the nanny, came up with breakfast for the sick family, some toast and a Coca-Cola. For us, it was always pretzels and Coca-Cola. When you were sick? Or Sprite. Fixed everything. Pretzel and Sprite. Yes. Saltines or toast and Sprite. But yeah, Yeah. Sprite makes me want to gag now. Even when I'm not sick, (laughs) it reminds me when I'm sick. Yeah, true, right? So later that day, Helga found Helene dead in their bathtub, Mm. dressed in her nightgown. She was found with a toxic dose of dexophane which is a painkiller prescribed to Helga in her blood. In the autopsy report that he ended up sending to her parents, he completely like erased that information. So it was ruled an accident. Oh my. Even though she was in the bathtub, she was bleeding from the head, but all the blood in the tub was cleaned and it was just way too clean. Uh, I guess it was kind of like a slip and fall or a suicide because she took all them painkillers. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But before Helene passed away, Helga started a very close relationship with Osa's little sister, Alexandra. And he told Osa that he had dreams and prophecies of marrying her. Osa was a little bit disturbed by this, not only because he was a leader of the church, he was still married to Helene at the time, and he was already having uh, a little techtel going on with Osa, like a little affair. Well, if he's having an affair and he's married, I mean... Yeah. Couldn't surprise her that much. Right. But he told Osa, "Mm, your little sister, you know, had a prophecy. I'm going to marry her someday. Right. And she's like, "Mm, that's gross. We're already having an affair and you're still married. I mean, he's gross all around. So I don't know why she was disturbed that he was still married thinking about her sister because she was having an affair with him already. Look, he just needs to keep it in his pants. It's very hard to keep track of all these techtelmechtels. It's hard to keep track of what you're saying. (laughs) Oh, guys, I'm so sorry. (laughs) But Helga actually really didn't care if Osa approved of him marrying her little sister because she moved in. Alexandra moved in with Helga in the spring of 2000, and they got married that spring, which was just months after the death of Helene, his wife. So the nanny, Sarah, she was married to her boyfriend, but 
I guess she always kind of knew maybe this wasn't really the right fit. Things were not going very good. And they used Helga for marital counseling. Because remember, small church, everybody goes to everyone. It seems like everyone needs a counselor in this story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, they do. So with within months of living with Alexandra, Helga began grooming Sarah. Sarah's husband found it strange that the counselor they went to see, which was Helga, always took Sarah's side in their arguments. <gasps> and she eventually admitted during a session that every feeling she was supposed to have for her husband, she had for Helga instead. Oh, wow. But Helga and Sarah claimed that it was not lust or adultery, but instead that it was if that's how she felt, it was the will of God. And Sarah's husband, there's not much he could do about it. <laughs> okay. So Helga convinced Sarah that God wants her to perform sexual acts with him as part of the intercessory prayer. I have he, to commit adultery. But this was all, Andrea, not for the gratification of himself, no. but it was to honor God. Of course. It was to honor God. Come on. He wouldn't do that. And Sarah later said in court, during the spring, Helga became more and more intense in his courtship. She was always invited to his home to pray, and he, she said he looked at her with love in his eyes That's great. and talked about heavenly love. Helga told Sarah that they should make an alliance and an act of obedience to God. And in the beginning of the summer, Helga became very, very ill. And Sarah took him to the hospital. He told her that this was a test, that it was a battle with the devil, and that this was a time of trials, and it would start now with his illness. When they returned from the hospital, Sarah's husband came to pick her up. He was told that Sarah was needed at Helga's side. Sarah was made to stay in his room for six months, because remember, she was the shield of God. Yeah. During the nights, Helga was fighting with the devil and having fits. And in order to win the battle, he had to have sex. And that was the only way he could fight off the devil. Wow. I feel so bad for him. That must have been a really hard fight. He kept that poor woman in his room for six months and used her as a sex slave. And she wasn't allowed to leave? She was not allowed to leave. Oh, wow. Because he was fighting the devil and she was the shield. And with her there, he could win the battle. So eventually they were talking about marriage when Helga asked Sarah if she could kill someone if God asked her to. And he proceeded to talk to her about Abraham's sacrifice of his son. I don't know if you remember, but God asked Abraham to kill or sacrifice his son. Yeah. And when it came right down to it, when he was finally going to do it, you know, an angel appeared and said, stop. By the end of 2001, Helga told the other pastors that he and Sarah wanted to get married. But Osa said that according to God, that wouldn't be right. Helga convinced Sarah to continue their sexual relationship with new implication, not love, but only God's will. Like, he's like, I'm not having sex with you because I love you. It's because it's God's will. That's how he got her to do stuff. She was, she was a believer. She loved God and believed that these people worse, you know, from God, that they could talk to God. Well, he then told her that he had gotten an anonymous letter according to which his second wife would be taking from him as well. And close to him, there was a woman made just for him, but that she was stuck in another marriage. So he tells Sarah, I got this letter and it says, like, there's a woman close to me that's made for me. That's got to be you. 
but you are stuck in the marriage. So you're going to have to do something about it. And my second wife, Alexandra, is going to be taken from him, which I think means she's going to die. But this was an anonymous letter. Nobody knows if it came from God or whoever. Sure. I'm sure it was God. Mm -hmm. Well, Sarah told the court later that uh, she was told if her husband wasn't willing to divorce her, he would die. And she was kind of like in a state of shock. And she believed all the supernatural things that happened to Helga when he was fighting the devil. And she agreed to divorce her husband in 2002. During the year 2003, Helga was almost the only person that Sarah ever talked to. He had her so isolated from everyone else that there was nobody else for her to talk to. She was his slave, deprived of her own will, and mostly locked up in the bedroom. He would tell her, you're so disgusting, an arrogant bitch, unintelligent, blonde, fake, temptress. Every word hurt Sarah deeply. And then he ended with the words, I love you. Yeah. And by then she was so grateful that he loved her in spite of her being so horrible and ugly that she was grateful for the I love you. That is so sad. That is extremely sad. At the same time, the next door neighbor, Annette Linde, also started a secret relationship with Helga. Sometimes she would take Sarah's place in the bedroom while Sarah waited on the couch and Helga's wife in the guest room. Annette never spent the night, though, because just across the road was her husband, Daniel, waiting for her at home. And towards the end of 2003, Helga again asked Sarah if she could kill if God wanted her to. And again, she said, no. He didn't give up easily, though. Helga used anonymous text messages to plant thoughts in Sarah's mind. You know what you have got to do. Get it done with before November 25th. Otherwise, it will be too late for you. And in case you're wondering what November 25th is all about, that date was Helga's and Helena's, his first wife's, wedding anniversary. But Sarah, she had doubts and she asked Helga if he sent those anonymous text messages. She's like, did you send this crap to me? And he denied it. So and he got kind of mad about it. So Sarah apologized, but she was still confused. She said the other day, I had no thought of killing anybody. But now it feels as if you want me to murder your wife. And he replied, it's you who says so, not me. And she said, I don't want to kill anybody. Let's forget about it. Why are we even talking about it? She asked him after a little while later. And he said, because I believe that is exactly what will happen. So the next day, Sarah got another anonymous text message. It read, don't be heartbroken. Don't hesitate. For his sake, Helga. For her sake, his wife, for God's sake, and for your sake. To come home is grace. So, yeah, kill her because then she's dead and she can come home to heaven, pretty much. Oh, wow. Sarah said to Helga that she wanted to talk to Osa's husband, Patrick, about this, but Helga said that he wouldn't understand and that he himself was above anyone else and that she must not ever talk to anybody else. The text messages just kept coming and coming, talking about God's plan and her only way to redeem herself to achieve salvation. But interestingly, Sometimes these messages weren't anonymous. Instead, they came from Helga's own cell phone number. But later he explained this to her by saying the messages were actually sent to him by God. And he just kind of forwarded them to Sarah. Mm. In person, he pushed Sarah not to deny God's plan that she is a sinner, and she will burn in hell if she refuses God's will. 
And through these text messages, Helga, I noticed he never clearly really said that he wanted her to kill his wife, Alexandra. He kind of broke her down little by little and then planted these thoughts in her mind using text messages and making her more and more convinced that this was really a message from God. Mm -hmm. Sarah attempted to kill his wife using a hammer, but she didn't hit Alexandra hard enough. Alexandra woke up from a deep sleep and fought her off. She called her husband, who was out in his car with his lover and neighbor, Annette, and finally he came running in, and Sarah was eventually shunned and sent away from the community. She ended up moving back to her little hometown with her father. The assault was never reported to the police, because Helga was like, Okay, Alexandra, we don't need to report that. We're going to send her away. You're fine. You're alive. Nothing really happened. You have a little bump on your head. So she was like, okay, cool. We're not going to report it. But while she was living with her father, Helga kept in touch with Sarah. She became so lonely, fearing to lose God's grace, that Helga continued to push her to make a new attempt to kill his mistress the neighbor's wife, and his wife again. Not the mistress, her husband. I'm sorry. And Sarah was longing to be back in the community, and she knew she had to do something big to be forgiven. Five days before the murder, Helga gave this sermon that Sarah listened to. What are you afraid of? You know, it is like this. When you seriously can say, I do not fear death, then you have a homeland to come to. I want to move closer to God. I want to kill everything that stands in the way. And I feel like this was kind of like a secret message for Sarah. Like, if you want to go to heaven, you have to kill everything that stands in the way. Ugh. So the anonymous text messages also resumed. Sarah was instructed to buy a handgun, which is actually really not an easy task in Sweden. Gun laws are super duper strict. It took her three tries before she actually got a gun. She drove to Stockholm and started talking to some shady randos at the train station about wanting a gun. And this guy said, sure, for about 15,000 Swedish krona, I'll get you a gun and the bullets. And she was like, cool. But he told her you have to pay up front. And she said, bet, I'll wait for you here. Well, she waited for hours and he never came back. And she finally realized she got scammed. That didn't discourage her. The second time she tried another guy, he wanted 10,000 krona and to meet her again in 24 hours. When they met up the next day, he gave her the gun and the bullets. I mean, she didn't look at the gun. She didn't know. She never seen a real gun in her life. She didn't even really know what to look for. But when she got home, she noticed that there was a little bit of a problem. She could see that the barrel was plugged with something and the bullets didn't fit either. So she was like, well, third time's a charm. I'm going to go out again no. and find a new seller. And the new seller did come through and brought her a gun. The shootings took place in the early morning of January 10th, 2004. At 1.30 a.m., Helga called Sarah to say people were still awake in the village. There was still movement. And he asked where she was at. And she said, I'm in my dad's Volvo, and I'm still about an hour away from Knutby. At 3.30 a.m., he called again to tell her that the coast was clear, all the lights were off, and everybody was sleeping. And the last call at 3.30 lasted about 12 minutes, where she admitted to him to being super nervous. But regardless, she was almost there, and she was going to go ahead with it. At 4 a.m., Sarah parked the Volvo about 500 yards from Helga and Alexandra's home. Over her head, she pulled dark pantyhose with cutouts for her eyes, and on her feet, she put 
you know, the type of blue shoe protection you see doctors wear in surgery or at crime scenes. Yeah. Those blue whatever. She didn't want to get the floor dirty. Right. Good. Well, she bought them a size bigger than her own, hoping in an effort to maybe throw off the police because it was a shoe size 38 and she wears 37. So through the night, she trekked through the deep snow, taking about 15 minutes to arrive at the house. Thanks to a fight between Helga and Alexandra the day before, the back door handle was already broken and she walked right in. First through the laundry room and then up the staircase. She moved around quickly and without any problems. She lived in that house for a very long time. She knows the layout. When she entered the master bedroom with her gun, she found only Alexandra lying in bed unaware that Helga was actually with the kids in their bedroom. She was probably hoping that God would tell her to stop just like he did with Abraham before, you know, he could kill his son, because that's what was always presented to her. Mm -hmm. And I can see her probably thinking, when is this angel going to arrive to tell me to stop and I'm forgiven? Sarah fired a shot at Alexandra, which hit her in the hip. She woke up and she started to scream. Then Sarah got closer to fire two more shots in her head. On her way back downstairs, thoughts crept into her mind like, what if she isn't really dead? So that caused her enough anxiety to turn around and go back upstairs to make sure the job was done. She got back to the room and found a hole in Alexandra's temple and a bed covered in blood. She was relieved knowing that the first half of God's plan had been fulfilled. Sarah got back outside and began heading towards the Linda household on her way to Daniel. She went the back way, familiar with the area, to avoid being spotted in the streetlights. Within minutes, Sarah is at the Linda's locked back door. She breaks through it quite easily and is quickly on her way upstairs, headed towards the bedroom, and found the bedroom door was locked, which I thought was weird. Why do people lock their bedroom door? Do you? No. But she found the bedroom door locked. Frustrated, she walked back outside and she called Helga at 4.32 a.m. for a minute and 54 seconds. And he instructed her to simply knock on the bedroom door because she's like, what am I going to do? The door is locked. And he's like, go back up and knock. Somebody will open. And he also lets her know that the shots were really not very loud. And she was really surprised and shocked that he could hear that or that he knew because she didn't think he was in the house, but he was just in the kids' bedroom. And that kind of caught her off guard a little bit. She knocked on the bedroom door several times before hearing movement on the other side. The lock clicked and the door swung open, leaving Sarah standing face to face with Daniel. He saw a man with a sock over his head pointing a gun at him of average height. Within moments, Daniel had been shot in the chest and then directly in the face. Daniel fell backwards, flat on the floor, and Sarah ran back outside. But just like with Alexandra, she stopped because she thought, what if he wasn't really dead? So she turned around to go back, but then she sees a light that turns on directly ahead of her, and someone else is awake. And actually, Daniel Linda shared the house with another family that woke up, and it was the Frank nurse. So she's like, screw this, I'm out of here. So she runs back to her car. But not only is Daniel still alive, Samuel Frankner is quickly by his side. Despite being shot in the face, Daniel had immediately grabbed his cell phone and called the police at 4.45 a.m. Unable to really speak, Samuel took over the phone to call for help and then went on to alert several members of the congregation. And among that group was Helga, who came running straight over. Sarah returned to her car down the road and texted Helga that the job was complete and the coded message that said she was sick. 
She drove out of the neighborhood, passing all of the incoming police and ambulance on her way out. So by now, a small crowd has gathered outside of Daniel Linda's home, and he's carried out to the ambulance on a stretcher. As he's loaded in, Helga gets in too, because he is a caring pastor, and he needs to ride with him to the hospital. That's so sweet. Yeah. Before leaving, Daniel managed to describe his attacker to the police. And then Helga sent Samuel, that lived in the house with the Lindas, to his house and wake up Alexandra to tell her what was going on. Oh. Yeah. Smart. So when Samuel arrived at the Fosmo's house to alert Alexandra, no one answered the door. He lets himself in instead and found that when he tried shaking her awake, his hands came back covered in blood. Then he alerted the police across the street and one officer was immediately suspicious, and it happened to be the same officer that responded to Helga's first wife's death just four years prior. Mm. So he's like, mm, this is the second wife in, the, in this house yeah. that died. Right. Weird. Right. So the police began interrogating Helga regarding Daniel's attempted murder and also they added that his wife was found dead in the home as well. He broke down and cried first and then quickly recovered and immediately blamed Sarah Swenson for the murder. Oh my goodness. He tells them about the attack on Alexandra with a hammer just two months ago and Helga is released after that, you know, but not before they could wiretap his phone. Good. And they looked for Sarah. It took him about a day to find her. She initially denied any involvement, but once she was at the police station, she confessed within minutes. She said that she did it, and she did it alone, and nobody promoted her or asked her to do it or helped her in any way. Her adamant claims of acting alone only made the investigators more suspicious. Meanwhile, the surveillance on Helga's cell phone revealed persistent and romantic text messages between himself and Daniel's wife, Annette. She even complained about having to visit her wounded husband in the hospital. He should have just died. How dare he? In another conversation between him and a member of the church, Helga remarked that it is up to the congregation to pray that police won't find any evidence linking him, Annette, or Osa to the murder and attempted murder. The police took Helga into custody again, and they had a lot of evidence against him, like Sarah's calls during the attack and the text messages the two had over the past few weeks. The text messages that came from Helga's number, he explained that they were religious discussions and that he hopes the messages didn't get mixed up and inspire her to murder his wife. The messages from the unknown number, the anonymous messages Sarah received that were claimed, you know, were from God, but now they found out that Helga actually had two cell phones. And I mean, I guess we kind of figured that he had another cell phone. Well, but yeah, it, but good that they figured it out. Right. Good. Yeah. Eventually, Sarah opened up and told the whole story. But since she had previously deleted all of the messages, it turned out to be, at that time, just her word against his word. So two weeks before the trial, police outsourced a computer company who were able to recover the deleted messages, and there were thousands of messages, painting a horrific yet clear image of brainwashing and manipulation. In 2004, Helga Fosmo was convicted of solicitation of murder and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Sarah Swenson was convicted of murder and attempted murder, 
but found to be mentally ill at the time, which changed her sentence to an indefinite stay in the mental institution. In prison, Helga started receiving letters from a woman, which turned into phone calls, and then it turned into personal visits. And then he and the 30-year-old got married at the Kumla Prison Chapel in 2007, two years after she sent the first letter to him. But it wasn't Sarah. No. It was just some other rando. Right. Yeah. Just some woman. You know, I don't get that. We should come up with a name for these. (laughs) I don't know. They're just like sick in the head. Weird, I guess. I mean, there are a lot of people that write prisoners for maybe educational purposes. Maybe they're in that field, criminal justice or whatever it may be. But women, they're like, oh, my God, you're so hot. I don't get it. I don't know. I guess to each their own. However you refer to Osa Valdau, head pastor, bride of Christ, or maybe even leader of a cult, denied any knowledge of the murder conspiracy, even though she was mentioned several times in Helga's text messages to Sarah, and she was never charged with any involvement. Sarah was released in 2011, and Helga has now been granted parole after serving 17 years of his sentence. Yeah, and I think I mentioned that earlier, that number kind of surprised me that there are up to 10,000 cults that still exist today in the United States alone. (gasps) 10,000 cults. That is so many. Yeah. Well, I feel like pretty much as a good rule of thumb to maybe remember that God will probably never send you text messages. Hey, you know what, though? Someone in my life has sent me anonymous text messages, and it was for like a joke that I walked right into. I had no idea that they were like texting me my hotel room was ready. And I go up to the front desk and I'm like, no, 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 it is. You texted me. And Caleb, he walks in behind me. (laughs) He's such a creeper. Yeah, if you have any friends like that, that will just rando text you yeah yeah if you don't have one get you one because they're (laughs) right i guess they're weird (laughs) weird weird but yeah there is a way you can anonymously text people and you just download this app ask caleb oh wow you just i was just thinking i'm like that's too much for me to get a second phone that's like too much no you don't (laughs) need a second phone oh gosh this is so scary so scary, just as scary as a cult. And if you are in a cult and you are trying to leave or you you have left a cult and don't know where to go from there, or if you know of someone who is in a cult and needs help, you can visit cultrecovery101.com where you can find cult counseling, mental health professionals with cult recovery experience, former cult members, member counseling, and much more. Or you can call the Cult Education Institute at 408 486 9202 or visit com. They focus on those in recovery from cults and also narcissistic relationships. And it is very hard to leave a cult. And once you are that brave and you have left, it's very hard to overcome what you have been told all those years prior. So there is help out there. And love is a verb. It's an action word. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if I say I love you. Yeah. It matters that you show up and that you're showing it. Yeah. In every way, not what is coming, the vomit, word vomit that's right. coming out of your mouth. Well, a lot of these cult leaders or sects, they it, prey on vulnerability. Yes. Yeah. It's very hard to get out of. Yes. I say, Find truth in yourself and what you know to be true about your higher being, Mm -hmm. where you came from first. Trust yourself first and definitely always have your own opinion. That being said, that was fabulously well done and jazz hands to you. Well, thank you very much. If you like 
this episode or any other episode, please give jazz hands to me. Duh. <laughs> I'm just now like, ooh, yeah, you guys should have seen me. One of these days, we should like record our recording. <laughs> Um, yeah, but if you like this episode or any other episode for that matter, please give us a good review on Apple Podcast, on Spotify, or on our website. We would really appreciate it because good reviews mean more visibility. Anonymous text your friends. Tell them we said hello. Send them our way. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, our puppies say hi. Yes, definitely. All right. So stay sassy. Stay judgy. And stay tuned in with the Judgy Crime Girls every Wednesday. Okay. okay. Love we, you. Wait. Oh. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> we actually love you. Yes, we do. <laughs> Not like a cult. <laughs> Not like a cult. Yeah, don't be weird like that. No. But okay. we love you. Okay, we love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.